Hi, I'm Deirdre Valton and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. It's been nearly three months since lockdown began. Three months since Leo Varadkar asked us all to stay at home. We all need to take steps to reduce close human contact. That's how the virus is spread. We complied, we socially distanced, we worked from home. We were all in this together. For weeks now, people have endured a curtailed life and have made massive sacrifices to deliver that progress. Last month, we entered phase one of the roadmap out of lockdown. And now we're on the move again. More cars are on the roads and the sounds of back garden get-togethers fill the summer evenings. But does this taste of freedom mean people will push the boundaries? Over the bank holiday, Gardaí again were forced to disperse large crowds who gathered to enjoy the sunshine in various beauty spots. Many of us have decided to bend a rule here and break a rule there. Things have become somewhat more confusing for people. So as the data come in, it's going to be really interesting to see how well people are comprehending the rules, how well they're sticking to them and how well they think other people are sticking to them. On today's podcast, I speak to Pete Lunn a behavioural economist with the ESRI. We know that the most important thing is that there is clear communication about why the behaviour that is being asked for is best for all. As community transmission remains low, Pete tells me how this might affect people's willingness to cooperate with the guidelines. We also speak about the Black Lives protests which took place in Dublin on Monday, with almost 5,000 in attendance. The response to this was mixed, with many concerned about a lack of social distancing among protesters. Those people are angry. Uh, You can understand why they're angry, Uh, as is the case with many protest movements. There's a strong sense of group identity amongst them. So one suspects for that afternoon, social distancing went to the back of the mind. From Monday, the country is due to move into phase two of the roadmap. We'll be allowed to travel 20 kilometres from our home, go inside another household. But if we're given an inch... Will we take a mile? Pete, we're starting to emerge from lockdown. Uh, When we spoke last time, you predicted uh, relaxation of the rules was going to be harder to stick to than a full lockdown in terms of the collective mentality. What changes have you seen now in how people are responding to lockdown restrictions? I think there are a number of changes, but it's very early days. And I think it's probably fair to say that there's already a bit of confusion emerging. Um, I think the rules are very straightforward for how people needed to behave when the curve was on its way up. It was pretty clear there were a few things you needed to do, primarily stay at home and only go out for essential reasons. It was pretty simple and straightforward to understand why those rules were in place and fundamentally what they were and how they applied to you. I think that's already become more difficult. Um, It's partly become more difficult because the public discourse now is often talking about and arguing about things that are several phases away because of the economic implications of that that people can see in the roadmap. So there's probably less focus on the public health advice for what people should be doing now, uh, whether they are doing that and how one reinforces that. And as well, people are already talking about what's possible in phase two, and there's lots of writing in the newspapers about what people are going to get up to in phase two and how that's all going to change. So I think things have become somewhat more confusing for people. Um, And we know that the public health messages were very well absorbed by the large majority of the people um, on the way 
up when we were trying to flatten the curve and the infection rate was rising. As the data come in, and it's very early days on the exit so far, so as the data come in, it's going to be really interesting to see how well people are comprehending the rules, how well they're sticking to them, and how well they think other people are sticking to them. I would go as far as to say, even on the sketchy data that we have so far, though, there is some evidence that compliance is probably not as good on the way down as it was on the way up. Uh, and we can see that people are pushing the boundaries and taking much more of an a la carte approach to the rules, uh, outside at least. Uh, meanwhile, Gardaí seem to be taking a more hands-off approach. What's the right official response to that from a behavioural science point of view? And you know, what's needed to signal to others that they shouldn't go and, and do likewise? So the principles of how to solve a collective action problem haven't changed over the last few weeks. So a collective action problem is a problem where my outcome depends on your behavior and your outcome depends on mine. So that slogan, we're all in this together, has a fundamental truth that underlies it uh, about how all of our behavior is affecting each other at the moment. And the principles about how to solve those kind of problems haven't changed. Uh, we know that the most important thing is that there is clear communication about why the behavior that is being asked for is best for all. So if everyone can see why a particular behavior is best for all, uh, they're more likely to do it. And if that's communicated clearly and strongly, they're more likely to do it. I would say, as I've already said, that there's probably a little more confusion now. So it's a little harder to see why it is that the behavior in one particular phase of the exit strategy is definitely the best behavior for all. So that makes life a little more tricky on that score. There's then group identity. We know that in collective action problems, a really important thing is the degree to which everybody feels like they belong to the one group that is trying to achieve the same goal. Now, again, that's also becoming quite tricky because, of course, on the way out, more arguments are occurring about who should go first and what should be lifted first. Um, so it's probably the case that we're kind of developing a few factions about whether people should speed up or slow down. So that kind of common group identity is probably not quite as strong. The third thing that you need is some degree of punishment and even if that's only social disapproval. Now again, that becomes more tricky if more people um, are not abiding by the guidelines because we depend on that kind of social disapproval, even if it's just disapproving looks. I mean, one of the things that's been fascinating about this crisis is standing in supermarket queues as a behavioral scientist. And you see what happens is somebody gets a little bit close to someone else. All they have to do is give them a mildly disapproving look without even saying anything. And an apology comes jumping out and the person steps back and pays. I mean, that's just a piece of behavioral science absolutely in action there. That is mild social disapproval policing a coordination problem if you put it in academic language in ordinary life it just seems like everyday business right you just flash someone a look as if to say please don't do that and they go oh i'm sorry because they realize they're violating the principle now that becomes more difficult if the principles aren't absolutely crystal clear and if the behaviors aren't clear one of the things i think is really interesting is that compliance with those supermarket cues is as good now as it was three weeks ago what is difficult is where you're dealing with new guidelines or where you're dealing with things that are going to change over the phases and where people might be trying to say, well, look, you can't do this on Friday, but you will be able to do it on Monday and so on, where that guidance isn't quite so super clear. So the consequences of that are that the justification for the social disapproval or the punishment is not quite so clear and therefore it's likely to be somewhat less effective. So all of this are reasons why I initially, as you said, predicted that it would be more difficult to get really good compliance as infections came down and we began to reopen the economy. And from what we've seen in the first couple of weeks or so, I'd say that's probably right. 
You've said before also that peer pressure and people's sense of what others around them are doing plays a major role in how well people adhere to uh, these kind of rules. Is that what we're seeing now, though, a feeling that everyone else is loosening up? So why shouldn't I? There's some of that. So what we call that is uh, that people are conditional cooperators. That is, they will go along with making sacrifices for the public good, provided they can see that everyone else is doing it. Now, of course, that's provided they can see that everyone else is doing it. And as we see more people not complying, that weakens people's own incentive to comply because they feel like, well, look, if other people aren't doing it, why should I? I have to say at the moment, I mean, I still think the very large majority of people are complying. And actually, we can see that in the data. I mean, more than 80% of people are saying, you know, yes, I am, I am absolutely complying and I'm trying to comply, even if they might be a little confused over some of the rules here and there. We also ask people um, their own perception of whether others are complying. And actually, the majority of people think that the majority of others are complying. So it is true that most people are complying with the guidelines and most people think other people are too. But there is a substantial minority and there's also a difference between those two numbers. So people say that they are complying, but other people are less likely to. Now, to some extent, this is an illusion because it's what you can see. Um, You can't see people complying in their own homes. You can see people out and about who are not. And that also draws attention. Um, If you're in a park and there are 10 or 12 groups of people that you can see on a large field, and one of those groups is not complying with social distancing and, you know, or a bunch of people hanging off each other or whatever happens to be, that's the one that will draw your attention and that you will focus on. Um, So to some extent, you'd expect people to overestimate non-compliance. Nevertheless, the majority think the majority is still complying. So let's hope that sticks. Um, Do you think that we have a particular issue developing around young people? We've had a problem with young people right from the start of the crisis in the sense that their compliance has not been as high. But by young people, I actually mean adults under the age of 40. Uh, In our data, compliance has been substantially higher among adults over the age of 40. And that makes total sense because the under 40s depend far more heavily on their social lives for their well-being and happiness. And consequently, the sacrifices they're making are substantially larger than people who are in settled family circumstances, provided their family is happy, of course. So that's not hugely surprising. But yes, that's becoming uh, more evident, I think, because, of course, some of the first people to get back out and about are the people with the more active social lives. And therefore, I think we can see there are a lot more young adults out and about. But it would be a mistake to think that this is uh, the preserve of teenagers or youth. I mean, it's, it's true of people in their 20s and 30s as well, that they're getting out and about more quickly and that they experienced a bigger well-being drop as a result of the kind of full lockdown where we could only go out for essential reasons and not for social reasons at all. So it's not a huge surprise that their compliance wasn't quite as high. And as we come out of this, one would expect non-compliance to be higher among them. The Black Lives Matter march in Dublin at the weekend startled a lot of people as, as protesters uh, seemed to, to break the rules en masse. What does behavioural science say about group behaviour like this? Well, I think to be fair to the people who organised that march, they got swamped by numbers. They really didn't expect it and they didn't have systems in place and guidance in place to help them. So I think a mistake was made, essentially. And that mistake, obviously, was not just a mistake um, that was made organisationally. It was a mistake that was made in terms of media communication as well, because, of course, the things all over the television and we can see people not um, socially distancing. And that's likely to have some knock on effect because, because of what we can see. I mean, part of the difficulty there is, I mean, those people are angry. Uh, You can understand why they're angry. 
uh, as is the case with many protest movements, there's a strong sense of group identity amongst them. So one suspects for that afternoon, social distancing went to the back of the mind because another collective group identity and need to make a point came to the front of mind and was the dominant force. Um, but, you know, I've got some sympathy for the people organising the march because they obviously did not anticipate what actually occurred. And, of course, you know, one can criticise them for that and quite reasonably, but nevertheless, um, I think had they known, they would probably have done something a little different. Is there a general feeling at a, a kind of an official level, uh, Pete, that what happens out of doors is slightly less important than what's happening indoors? That's a really good question because, I mean, I'm not a public health expert. I have to be clear about that. I'm a behavioural scientist. But my understanding of the public health is that the chance of transmission indoors is substantially greater than it is outside. Um, that being out in the fresh air is one important thing that lowers the risk factor. So, yes, there is considerable worry about that. Of course, the thing that's also more difficult is that we can't see uh, what's happening in people's houses. We get the opportunity to really monitor it, even if only anecdotally, but not only anecdotally, through other means as well, through the guards and so on, when people are outdoors. So you get a real sense of compliant behaviour. Whether people are complying in their own homes is a much harder thing to see. We all know about Dominic Cummings' uh, road trip, um, what will this have done to the UK's efforts to, to maintain compliant behaviour? There is already some evidence emerging that the Dominic Cummings story has had an impact on compliance in the UK. So there's survey evidence to suggest that more people are now saying in response to a survey question that they are not complying because they don't agree with the policy. And surveys that were done the week before the Dominic Cummings story broke and surveys done immediately afterwards, so only a few days apart, at most seven days apart, are giving different answers to those questions. That suggests it had an impact. Um, as a behavioural scientist, I'm not even slightly surprised because it undermines the clarity of the message, it undermines the group identity, um, and all of the things that we know make people more likely to comply with best behaviour in a collective action problem being undermined by the behaviour of one of people associated with the leaders of the group and it's not a surprise at all that compliance drops as a result and it appears to have done so at least according to the survey evidence so the UK take a hit for that behavior um, and it's most unfortunate. I don't think anybody here um, begrudges our Taoiseach a, a visit to the an outing to the park uh, with friends but um, do you think it was a good idea for him to do that? Um, I've got some sympathy for him I mean it, it, we have this concept that we call marginal behaviours, where there are behaviours where it's somewhat unclear whether it's within the guidance or not within the guidance. There are bound to be some of those, whatever the guidance are. I think the T-shirt was engaging in a marginal behaviour. Uh, it's probably the case that those are more likely to be anti him or uh, not his supporters are going to jump on that a little bit, as they appear to do, uh, whereas those are his supporters will forgive him. Um, I mean, it's not, a, it's not like driving over 200 miles to be in a different house when you're showing symptoms. <laughs> it's a completely different scale of, um, scale of issue. But I mean, it, it, it's notable that he's not going to do it again. If we need to reintroduce restrictions, Pete, say in the case of uh, an increase in cases, how difficult will that be? It really depends. Um, and this is a really important issue. So what has changed now, and this is, this is crucial, what has changed now from a behavioural point of view is the reason why we've all got to follow these guidelines has become substantially more complex. When the number of infections was increasing, it was clear. We faced a potential crisis where we were going to get overwhelmed with sick people we couldn't treat. Everybody could understand that. So that idea of flattening the curve or just getting the number of infections down and that we all had to do that was very, very clear. 
Um, and as we could see the number of infections rising on a daily basis on the television and we could hear the numbers going up, we were getting strong feedback about our own behavior and about the performance of the country as a whole. Now, that has become more difficult. If we need to put restrictions back on because infection starts to go back up again, an awful lot is going to depend on how that is communicated to the public and their understanding of the risk that they face. Because what's different now is we're now in a trade-off. We're no longer in a situation where essentially we've just got to go as far as we can in changing our behavior to get the numbers down. We are in a trade-off between limiting the economic and social damage that this crisis has produced, which is massive and painful, um, particularly for certain people who've got hit economically or socially. We're now balancing that against the public health risk. So we're in this trade-off where different people would balance it in a different place. You know, you and I might have different values, we might have different preferences, we might have different tolerance for risk. All of those would change where we would put the balance point. So because it's become so much more complex now, how we describe that public health risk, if we start to get a tick back up in cases, is going to become really, really important whether people will buy into having to restrict their behaviour again, which they might. It's notable that more than half of the Irish population at the moment expect a second wave. They're quite pessimistic about our ability to keep infection down. Now that might mean that if infection starts to come back up and restrictions come back on that they will be okay with it. But I think everything, if that happens, and let's obviously hope that it doesn't, but if that happens, everything is going to depend on how well we can again communicate that public health risk so that people can definitely see the need for it if we have to put some restrictions back on. Uh, in in a related vein, we're we feel we're on a trajectory out of this where people feel that things are, albeit slowly, improving. But there will be effects that will likely remain in place for a very long time. For example, how we organise ourselves in a school setting. How do you think people are going to respond to that once the realization fully hits? I think because we got to where we got to. Um, it's entirely possible that people will be able to develop new habits and new environments, including schools. Now, it's obviously going to be really difficult. I mean, especially with young children, there's a degree to which it's impossible. And what will be needed, therefore, is some kind of infrastructural interventions. I mean, I was talking to school teachers only this week, actually, about how it would be possible to organise a class so that while you cannot maintain social distance, you can at least limit the number of kids who are interacting with how many other children. So if you separate your tables really well, if you get a principal across that says, you know, you've got a blue group, a green group, a red group, however you organise a classroom, it's possible to go some distance to limit social interactions and to try to keep social distancing to some extent there. So a lot of it is going to be about developing those new habits. At the moment, um, we've done a, in the behavioral subgroup, we've done a survey of businesses that shows that businesses are thinking along similar lines. So they um, have already got quite good information and are reading that information as well, as far as we can see about how to reopen a business and organize it so that social distancing is promoted. One of the really important things that will keep coming back as places open is this whole business of hygiene. It remains the case overwhelmingly that washing your hands, boring that the message is, is the most important thing you can do. And therefore, organizing workplaces and bathroom access and reminder messages, all this kind of stuff, so that people's hygiene behavior becomes more habitual. All of these things are going to just be with us for months. And it's a lot of it is about trying to make that as easy as possible for people. So it just becomes habitual. It just becomes a part of everyday life that's kind of mundane and doesn't annoy us. 
I mean, if we're constantly being hectored and we're trying to go back to normal life and we can't because we can't concentrate on anything else, that's not going to help us at all. So what we need is behaviorally informed interventions that try to make things habitual, easy and convenient for us so that we can get on with our lives without having to think about this damn virus all the time. Because I think it's safe to say the population is utterly sick of it and I know I am. What advice would you give government about the tone of its communications as we move into these these new phases? Um, so as as restrictions are easing, but um, possibly having to be to be rolled back on or the in relation to the, the longer term effects, it, it's surely not the same uh, way of messaging, is it? Uh, I think that's true, because. There's a sense in which the messaging as the number of infections was rising was just all about clarity and telling people the numbers. And once you did that, people were frightened enough by what was happening in the country that they followed the expert advice overwhelmingly, which is what we know from the behavioural science research. that We know this is what communities do when they face a serious threat. Um, you know, in, in emergency circumstances. You know, as I said, now it's more complex and you've got this trade-off between economic and social progress on the one hand and the risk on the other. So I think that does change the communication. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I've already talked about uh, the clarity with which one has to explain why it looks the way it does and why the behaviour is best for all. That's become more difficult, but it's still nevertheless the central thing that you've got to do. You've got to explain why doing this is best for everybody. Survey evidence at the moment, incidentally, is quite interesting on that score. So if you ask people, are we going too fast in lifting restrictions or are we going too slow? Just over half the population think we're about bang on right. And then there's a minority that think it's too fast and a minority that think it's too slow. And they're almost perfectly evenly balanced. So if we were a tightrope walker at the moment, we are walking with our pole right on the tightrope and we're still on it. Um, that's how well balanced we are. But that's going to become really hard to maintain as time goes on for the reasons we were discussing earlier. So how do you do it? I think myself, my hunch is the most important thing actually is the public health feedback. It's how can we get a convenient easily understood idea of the risk on the public health side into the consciousness now i think one thing that's helped there is this r naught number so this idea of how many people does somebody who gets infected infect i think people have begun to understand that if that number is above one the virus is going to keep growing and growing and growing until we do something about it so if that number gets up there we can see the cases are accelerating again that might be a very useful way of giving the information and giving the feedback and hopefully we won't have to hopefully we can keep saying look it's down there 0.5 the virus is dying out in the country and we're getting across this idea of whether the virus is expanding or dying out might be a really important feedback mechanism and how we do that um, is going to be important so the advice i would give is that we've got to get people to understand the basics of how the virus spreads and some idea of how well we are doing on the public health side that they can balance against the economic so and social progress that they can feel and see all the time. There are still people entertaining notions of leaving the country on holidays this year, Pete, uh, but they're getting contradictory messages about whether this summer, for example, is the right time uh, for a foreign trip. And it may come down to a personal judgment call. What does behavioural science tell us about what people do when they get mixed messages? Uh, what happens is you get greater individual differences in behaviour, which isn't a huge surprise. I mean, those people who perceive the largest risk will be the people who are least likely to go on any kind of foreign holiday. But they'll, they'll also be the people who, if they can see that there is some wriggle room, 
will be the first to do it. I mean, it's a little bit like early adopters versus the majority of the rest of us who watch how the early adopters get on, see whether they've wasted their money and then only pile in after them. I mean, there's an element of that. And wherever there is wriggle room, wherever there's a lack of clarity about what's reasonable and what's not reasonable, uh, we will see the individual differences and some people doing it. Um, I mean, I think one of the really important things there is going to be, uh, as it pans out, what is the quarantine on return going to look like? I mean, is it really going to be enforced and are people really going to have to do it? And will they face social disapproval if they don't? I mean, if somebody turns up at a friend's house having you know, returned from a foreign holiday four days previously or turns up in the office having returned from a foreign holiday less than two weeks previously, will they face a lot of social disapproval for that? Uh, how will that then be reported and communicated? I think all of these things will matter. I mean, fundamentally, people won't do stuff if they think the rest of society is largely going to disapprove of them uh, if they don't, or at least they'll think twice about it. Some people do, but the large majority of people won't. Uh, if they think that they're going outside the standards that are expected by their friends and family, they won't do it. Pete, thanks very much. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan and Declan Collin, who produced today's podcast. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back next week. 